Welcome back to the Deeper Cut podcast ministry of Mercy Hill Presbyterian Church in Glassboro, New Jersey. My name is Tim Pasek. I'm a ruling elder at Mercy Hill, and I'm glad that you've joined us again this week for a new episode. I am joined, as always, by our pastor, Phil Henry. Phil, how are you doing today? Doing great, Tim. Good, Good to see your, you. your smiling face today Thank you. Uh, in your study uh, or slash our recording studio. Right. It, it doubles. Pastor's office is used for many things. <laughs> we'll keep it strictly to recording studio for the next Sounds 45 minutes or, or so. Sounds like uh, a plan. We, we are um, in good company of one another today, but we don't have any guests joining us, which we do, is... We do have one guest that isn't oh, always with that's, us. That's true. We have um, the most loyal guest of our show, if I could dare say. Rocky the dog. <laughs> if you hear Rocky in the background, he's just making sure that uh, you know that he's in the room. But yeah, we're, ha- we're happy to have you today, Rocky. Thanks for joining us. I don't think he'll be answering any questions <laughs> unless it's... Well, we didn't, in fairness, we didn't mic him or give him a headset, so we can't expect <laughs> um, responses from him directly, if, at if least. If you use the T word, his ears will perk up. Mm. Mm. We'll you try know, to avoid that in, you know where in that the is. discourse. Yes, okay. I know it well. I have two dogs at home. Yes, there are many words that we can't use in our. <laughs> the W word is one of them. Yes, yes, we can't say the word here without them thinking someone's at the door. Oh wow! Yeah, they're smart dogs. Um, I wouldn't say smart. They're just you know okay. creatures of habit. Okay. Let's put it that way. Okay, but much like kids. My kids are like that too. There are words we have to spell because uh-huh. they know. And, and my daughter, who is um, two and a half, now knows she doesn't know how to spell, but she knows the word that is being spelled. Oh, so man. we can't even spell the word bath anymore because she immediately knows that we spelled the word bath and it is bath time. Um, Boy, I'd love to so. see the, the synaptic brain cell patterns for oh, that. Oh, my goodness. Pa- that pattern recognition. Yeah. And the gymnastics that Allie and I have to go through to try to speak in code, essentially, around the kids. Do you know uh, Pig Latin or the IB language? I do know, yes. I, I think she'd figure it out just from the sounds. Some of the words are, are just going to be too... Anyway, I digress already. We're two minutes in and I'm already off topic, Phil. Um, this is why we need some guests here to help keep, keep okay. us... <laughs> anyway, I'm glad to be with you again. We're um, continuing in our... Our series at Mercy Hill and First Peter, um, we are f- four weeks in now and just finished the um, introduction, if you will, to Peter's letter. And so um, we will try not to revisit too much um, the previous weeks, although I'm sure they'll come up from time to time in the conversation today. But your sermon yesterday, um, I got to give you kudos right off the bat for the sermon title. Um, Scott and I were kind of joking when we went to post it on the website, like, oh, what was, he didn't explicitly say his sermon title. I wonder what it was. And Scott's like, oh, I bet it was Trust the Process. I'm like, we kind of had a chuckle, and then I went and asked you, and you confirmed. Yes. And then I went back to Scott and said, you nailed it. And, he, and he's like, no way. That's, so, um, so anyway, it was, it was a great sermon um, on uh, the process, God's process of salvation, if I could put it that way. Um, it's already posted, so listener, if you have not gone over there and listened to that, I'd encourage you to do so and then come back and, uh, and join the conversation with us. Uh, but there's a lot 
a lot that we could talk about um, here, and we only have a short time um, today to get into a few things, but maybe we could start um, with something that was almost outside the scope, if, if you will, of the sermon a little bit, where you had mentioned that these verses in First Peter 3 through 12... The whole, the no, whole, specifically verses six, seven, and eight. Oh, okay, so perfect. So right yeah. within our text from yesterday was, uh, or is your life verse? You said mm-hmm. in the pulpit. So I was wondering, inquiring minds, aka Tim's mind, would like to to know kind of maybe what you meant by that, and um, maybe how has these, how have these verses over your life as a Christian, how have you interacted with them or how has that changed maybe or matured in your interaction with them? Um, you know, as, as time has gone on and, you know, you've grown and Mm -hmm. you've, you've gone through the process of salvation. Yes. So I'd say the main way that the verses have changed for me is they've gone from being essentially a proof text, which and the the life verse itself is First Peter one eight. Even though you do not see him, you have not seen him. You love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And I remember when I actually went back after becoming a Christian at the age of eighteen, and I read it in context. I remember not liking the verses before it and after it because I didn't <laughs> understand them. But I still liked my, you know, the verse. And the verse that I just quoted, which I know by heart, and I, I have known it by heart my whole Christian life, for me at the time and for many years after, spoke to the need to believe and trust in God when it didn't make sense to me or I couldn't prove it on my own. Hmm. And so the testimony was. Essentially, for me at age 16, 17, and 18, attempting to make sense of my life and to prove things and to be successful and to deal with life's challenges on my own. And either unintentionally or intentionally excluding God from that because he was irrelevant. I couldn't see him. And therefore, I didn't believe in him. Mm. So kind of the empiricist error. And this included small forays into the Bible. I remember reading sections of the Gospel of Mark. I remember reading sections of Romans. And the memory has me uh, feeling like they were simply black ink on a page or red ink on a page as it were but when i for whatever reason opened to the end of my bible and started reading first peter and i landed my eyes landed on these verses i I stopped in my tracks and i said now there's something that makes sense Hmm. and this is a kid that went grew up for the most part going to church and to sunday school to vbs to hearing sermons not necessarily great sermons but you know hearing hearing sermons, actually hearing lots of bad sermons, which may have been part of the problem. Um, 
So this verse showed me that God was not in the business of, of giving me what I wanted. He was in the business of asking me to give him what he wanted, which is my faith, and that he would take care of the details of my life, which I was clearly not doing a very good job at. Hmm. But that was the summer, that was in the summer of, between my senior year and college. My conversion didn't really kick in full force until midway through my fall semester in college. And that came in conjunction with a group of Christians on campus in a campus ministry group called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I was just an amateur athlete at the time. I would give, try my hand at varsity sports uh, cross-country a couple of years later. But it's by being around bona fide, real-life Christian people that that verse and other Bible studies that I started to participate in, that I would say I, I had something like that born-again experience that mm. Peter is writing about. Mm. We all probably, I'm not saying that we all have this as our quote-unquote life verse, and certainly we all have our own unique stories of, you know, conversion or understanding the gospel, but I think that there's a, um, that verse relates to everybody. You know, it's universal mm -hmm. in a sense, uh, at least practically speaking, post, um, post the, uh, ascension no one has seen christ and you made the point during your sermon that peter is writing to people who would not have met jesus or followed jesus or had a chance mm -hmm. to talk to jesus or even see him even though peter did so even practically speaking though you've not seen him like literally we none of us have seen jesus um you mean the picture in my children's story of bible doesn't count i mean Probably not, Phil. <laughs> let's not go down the let's not go down that rabbit hole okay. today. <laughs> okay. maybe, maybe that's a conversation for for another day. I actually I know a couple guys in our church that would love to uh, sit in this room and have that conversation with us at some point. But um, yeah, I appreciate you you sharing that. Um, I appreciated you sharing it from the pulpit yesterday in a d different way, but you, you brought that up, as I mentioned. Um, so pastor's testimonies from the pulpit are, an important, I think, an important ingredient. We talk about homiletics and preaching, the art and craft of preaching in this, in this session sometimes, and I think it's an important ingredient, but it must not, like salt or chili powder, you mm -hmm. shouldn't overdo it. Because this verse is my life verse, I felt that that was always going to be present in the sermon in some way. I wasn't exactly sure how it would fit in. Mm -hmm. But too much self-referential talk in a sermon can, I think, impair the spirit speaking through the preacher with the words of Christ to Christ's people. So maybe give some feedback. How did I do? Do you see that as a problem at times with preaching? Um, either preachers are being too transparent or not transparent enough. A woman in our church thanked me for the message. She says, thank you for being so transparent. Thank you for being so vulnerable, so honest. 
So there is an, uh, an element of honesty, I think, in general to my preaching by my personality, but there's also, in some sermons, I'm a little more transparent than others. Um, I, <clears throat> I appreciate when you share personally. I don't, I'm not of the opinion that you need to do that every single sermon. Not that that's what you're striving to do either, but um, hearing a story or an anecdote or some type of practical application or some, some outworking of the text that is personal to the person who's sharing it, I think carries a much greater weight and impact than hearing, um, you know, a news article about mm -hmm. someone else or mm -hmm. a story from another time. Not mm -hmm. that those are not helpful either, just there's a connection there to the person in the flesh who's standing there, who is your pastor or who is the preacher today, who you get a chance to talk to after the sermon and ask more. Or like I was saying to you a little while ago, you know, I, I love hearing what's going on in your head because I, I, now I know how to pray for you, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, yeah, I very much appreciated it. I could perceive and notice a, a slight, uh, I don't want to say change, but... I could see how personal it was for you when you were sharing at that point because it was noticeable. Mm -hmm. It was just noticeable that this was a, a personal thing and you were sharing from your heart. Um, and I think that that carries a lot of weight in our church in particular, I would argue in, in any church, you know, hearing from their pastor in that way. And Phil, I mean, taking it outside the pulpit for a minute, I mean, it's amazing to me, um, not that I've been a member of, dozens of churches, but I've been a part of a few churches as a Christian. I I can't say I've ever met a pastor of a church who is kind of more honest about struggles, about things going on than you have been in my time with Mercy Hill. And not just as a, a fellow elder, but even before that, mm -hmm. you know. And again, there's there's uh, things that are appropriate from the pulpit on Sunday, and there are things that are, hey, we're in your study. <laughs> you know, it's a different conversation. Um, so anyway, that was a very long answer to your question. Feedback from me is very good in that, <laughs> in that regard. Good, yeah. I think if, if we were just to take one thing that you mentioned, a story from another time versus a story from the pastor, the benefit of each the benefit of an illustration from an expert, like a quote from an expert or a story from another time, is that you're not tempted to think about the one who's speaking in the same way. Mm -hmm. So you can simply hear what's being said and evaluate it as it touches on you. When the benefit of a story from the life of the preacher is that it it carries its own kind of credibility, hmm. which doesn't need to be established, unlike the, the other. Like, do I know this person? Do I believe this person? Do I care about this person? A lot of those things are already kind of packaged in to a story from the pastor, but it can draw undue attention to the man when the goal is to preach Christ to Christ's people. Right. Relatedly, and then we can jump to another question, I am, I am very uh, in sermon craft, the, the craft of 
writing and speaking the, the preached word. I'm careful in my use of second person plural, you, first person plural, we, third person singular, he, first person singular, I. So I think about that and, and prayerfully, <laughs> sounds incredibly um, detail-oriented, and it actually somewhat is, but I'm, I'm very careful about when I say you versus when I say we and I and he. Mm. <clears throat> I think the dominant pronoun for the, for the preaching mode should be you. And I am often tempted to say we and I because I don't feel adequate or I don't feel like I have the right to tell you what to do. So I, have, I often find myself trusting God to, to do what he will do in the lives of his people. I think people want to and need to be spoken to directly and not just included in the speaker's mm -hmm. frame of reference, which is what a we does. And then an I is even a little bit more hyper-personal. You have to actually actively put yourself into my frame of reference. Right. But that has a rhetorical value too, because I'm kind of inviting you into my story when I say I, and that has to activate your, your mind and will as a listener saying, I'm going to choose to insert myself into his story. And if, if you feel like you're being pushed around too much in the pulpit, like you're being told kind of a hellfire and brimstone, you are going to suffer, struggle, mm. go to hell, whatever the you is. After a certain point, I think a listener reaches a capacity where he or she will not, um, maybe it's fatigue, hmm. imperative fatigue. So there's quite a bit that goes into the, the prayerfully presenting the tone and the, you know, the tenor of the message along the lines of uh, how much I insert myself into the... Right. And I've never heard a course on this. Actually, I've heard a couple of comments. Uh, Tim, I mentioned John MacArthur before in his series on preaching, and Tim Keller has a great series on preaching Christ. And both of them talk about the importance of the second person plural. Hmm. But um, I've reflected quite a bit on it, and you just got a, a little snippet of those. Yeah, thoughts. yeah. I, well, I'll just say one thing, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, for anyone who may be tempted as a listener to a sermon to feel like um, a preacher is doing too much preaching for lack of a way of putting too much. You, mm -hmm. you've said this many times, I don't know on and off the, off the mic at this point, but you've said many times you are the first person to hear the sermon and you live with the sermon all week or as long as you've been preparing it and thinking about it and praying about it. We hear it once for, 30 to 40 minutes, mm -hmm. and if we choose to listen again, that's kind of up to us, but, you, you know, you hear the sermon many, 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 many times, and you were the first listener of the sermon, because it is God preaching, speaking through you. So mm -hmm. I, I say that not directed at you, Phil, but as to the, myself and to the other folks yeah, at Mercy Hill who, are, who are, are listening to you and to other people who preach from our pulpit, um, because, I, you know, I've preached three times now, I think, in Mercy Hill, and I know I'm always tempted to do the we thing, and it's not, 
I'm not even thinking about it in that way. It just feels less um, confrontational in a way to say we, because I know it applies to me too. And I guess what I'm trying to encourage myself and, and everyone else who's listening, who's not preaching, and who is a listener of the preached word. Just because you say you doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you. And in fact, it applies to you first. It's a good point. Um, so anyway, we can move on. Um, going back to um, your life verse and uh, the point that you had made in your sermon, um, which was your third point, you know, uh, it's at first faith and then later sight in, in talking about the process of salvation and how it can be trusted. Um, one of the things I appreciated, appreciated you bringing out from the text was the idea or the, or the reality that this current um, season of faith, is what you called it, is glorious. Thus, mm. Peter uses the phrase, we rejoice with joy inexpressible. I mean, he uses joy twice, and it's inexpressible joy. So this, wh- while phrase, our sight it? will be even more glorious in the future, and we could come back to that, um, even now, particularly in the context of, I mean, we're talking about trials, we're talking about pain, we're talking about suffering, the process of salvation, your point, uh, other points about, you know, it's like being refined, like gold, you know, you're in the furnace. And I think we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, a little bit more, but that is glory. Like that is glorious. So it's not a, um, I think what struck me is often I go, well, I just, I just got to, you know, grit my teeth and get through it because there's heaven on the other side. And that is not what Peter is saying at all Yeah, right now. You know, not that it's easy or that it's not painful at times or something along those lines, but um, even the the painful refining of ourselves and being made more like Christ through sanctification is in itself glorious and should be held with joy inexpressible. So um, anyway, I just wanted to point that out because that was part of the context of your life verse or when you were sharing that. And I found that extremely helpful and challenging Mm -hmm. to me because I like to play the part of a martyr and go, I just got to, I'll just suffer through it. It's okay. I'm not happy about it, but you know, there's something better on the other side. Well, there is something better on the other side, but that doesn't mean that what we have now isn't amazing um, and cause for joy. So I don't know if you have anything you want to add there before sure. we move so, on. But. So d- two verses. One is in, in John 3. There's a, actually, John's gospel in general has this theme of the present benefit of salvation, not just its future benefit. So when, when Jesus promises eternal life, he promises present blessing, present beatitude. If even looking at the beatitudes, they are invitations to experience present blessing. And so the best way to live 
life in a fallen world. That's what the Beatitudes are. Hmm. The second thing I'll say is, I mentioned union with Christ in the sermon, and so if a Christian is hyper-focused on the final expression and experience of salvation, that believer does not understand his union with Christ, which is a current experience of salvation, which is tied to the trials that you're going through. It's inextricably tied to those trials. The only way to experience the blessing of your union with Christ is in the context of living in a fallen world. So, of course, there will be a union with Christ which is consummated, full, visual, the so-called beatific vision, uh, creaturely communion with, with Christ, with God and Christ. But right now, the mode of our access to all the benefits of our salvation is by faith in the midst of trials. And trials have a, have a kind of a reciprocal function with, with faith that tends to expose weaknesses with our union with Christ, but it also uh, concentrates and, and enables us to lean in to our union with Christ and derive much more benefit from it. So, hmm. yeah, I think there's, there's a lot there that is worth meditating on and and even as i'm talking about it a little bit in the abstract theological frame i'm also realizing that's something i need to work on too (laughs) (laughs) i mean the 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 bible is just littered with the concept of um this is a process Right, and it's a hard process. And whether it's explicit teaching, like Peter is giving to the church, or if it's in the form of a narrative, and we're seeing that in God's people. I mean, I my head jumps right back to the garden with Adam and Eve, and, you know, God, God's cursing um, kind of their domains, if you will. Um, but then that story ends with him banishing them from the garden, well, that must have not been a very easy thing for them. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in a you're in a garden paradise, and um, you you get expelled from the garden. And I remember being a a baby Christian, if you will. I don't I don't get like that seems overly harsh. You know, like why 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 would God do that? I mean, couldn't he just kind of presented cursing why did he have to go one step further that seemed like Mm -hmm. a little too much and then coming to the realization of um well actually that's the most loving thing that he could have done is to banish them from the garden and to prevent them from eating of the tree and and therefore forever separating themselves from god um but you know, it kind of starts there and then goes on from there through through all of history. Um, I know you had, you, I think, had pulled together a list of some references um, that you didn't go through from the pulpit yesterday, but just other parts of the scripture yeah. that talk about this idea of purification and the struggles that we go through. Because it's really, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, it's, it's kind of all over the place. So the, the ground zero for divine testing is the idea that God is a father 
and fathers love their sons, and one way they prove their love for their sons is that they don't hate them, but they discipline them. Mm. And that, that language is, is, is intentional and it's biblical. Don't hate your son. Well, what do you mean? Well, you're not disciplining him. That proves that you don't, that you don't love him. Loving is equal to discipline, training, instruction, correction. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> so um, that's Hebrews 12, quoting Proverbs 3. And of course, Proverbs 3 is at the center of, of the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs. And in some ways, it's at the center of our understanding of God. So God is a father who disciplines his sons. Israel is a son that starting at that point that you mentioned with the expulsion from the garden, going all the way to the new garden, the the garden paradise of the new Jerusalem. Uh, Until consummation, we in in Christ, who is the new Israel, are, are disciplined and corrected. I found it interesting as I was preparing that even the blessings of God are tests. So the, the example I gave here is the example of manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16.4. Um, think about this. I'm going to give you every day the food that you need as a test. How could that possibly be a test? That sounds awesome. My fridge is full every single day. Yes, your fridge is full every single day with, uh, with you know, 27 loaves of Wonder Bread. And this Wonder Bread is wonderful because it, it's all you need. You might get bored of it. You might be tempted to think that it isn't enough. You might... Think back on the days when you had a different menu available to you in the other place that you used to live. So yes, it's a test. You might be tempted to think that it came by your own power. So yes, God tests us through the blessings that he gives us. And he also tests us through our trials as well. So, um, And then the other theme of testing that's worth noting, Exodus 17 too, the people test God which they're explicitly forbidden to do. You know, we're not to test God. It, it's, this, is a, this is a one-way, uh, this is a one-direction experience. God tests us. We, we're not to test God. Jesus was tempted to test God in his, in his wilderness temptations. Mm-hmm. And he quoted Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord thy God to the test. You receive what God has for you, not... Uh, you know, challenge God in that way. But we are to test ourselves. Lamentations 3.40, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. And my favorite, two two favorite passages on self-testing are Psalm 139, where I pray to God, search me, O God, and try me, test my heart, see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way, Psalm 139, 23, and 24. And then 2 Corinthians 13, 4, uh, what are you afraid of? Examine yourselves. See if there's something that's worth uh, 
considering. If, if you're doing fine, you have nothing to worry about. It's sort of a self-examination version of the cop, of the lights of the police car in, in your rearview mirror. <laughs> if, if you're not speeding, you don't have much to worry about. So I think the biblical theme of testing might best be summarized with Malachi 3.3, God is a refiner. He's actually given the very name. Refining isn't just a process in God's, a tool in God's toolbox. It's actually one of his divine attributes, such that it becomes his very name. I am, I am a refiner of my people. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, my mind's kind of racing to um, recent reading I've been doing and other examples, like uh, Jesus warning the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, you know, comes to mind. Um, or uh, the temptation that um, Abraham must have had with Isaac. You know, here's a blessing. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed through your offspring. Here he is. Go sacrifice him. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, so anyway. That's the classic example of, of the Old Testament test. Yeah. That's a good, good reference. There. Yeah. I'm just... I guess me bringing that out wasn't looking for uh, for Bible brownie points necessarily. It was. Um, it's amazing if you take a second and you think about what you read, you can almost find this almost in every mm-hmm. page of the scriptures. And Truly. I think that's just because, um, you know, we're all sinners. It applies to every single one of us, mm-hmm. you know, um, save for, for Jesus. So... Um, it's kind of a universal, a universal thing. We all experience it in different ways, um, which was another kind of, you didn't say it that way, but another, I think, really helpful point that you had made yesterday is that God isn't just some mean bully who, you know, um, is having fun by, by putting us through tests and trials. I think you were, you mentioned the kid that burns ants on the yeah, sidewalk. Yeah, I the, love that that I that imagery of like God isn't the you know the the elementary school kid with the magnifying glass trying to burn the antennas off the ants you know for fun right. you know for for kicks and giggles as they say. Right. So um, yeah, you you had pointed out which verse was it, Phil? Um, Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, right, um, uh, you have been grieved by various trials. Right, so I, I, I wanted to really drive that point home. But I also did make the point that it does seem a little more necessary for some of us than others. <laughs> and you were, you were referencing yourself. There, I was. So speaking of the self-referential yeah. aspect of preaching. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story? I thought that was great. People it was got a, great a kick reference. out of that. Yeah. Uh, I turned to my wife because we um, uh, j- uh, fun joke here. So we're expecting our third child, a son, this summer. 
and I am um, really, really um, pushing hard to name our son Shamgar. And I only bring that up now because there's no way Allie will ever let me name the kid Shamgar, but I'm trying. Okay, so um, I got to pause you there. We sang, here I raised my Ebenezer. <laughs> my, firstborn, my firstborn son was going to be named Ebenezer and that one got, that was a dead, dead on arrival. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> how I feel. I'm not letting go. I mean, uh, I, I know full well that Hold our on son to is not going to be Shamgar, but I can't help can. but continue the narrative while I yes. can. So um, as soon as you brought up the story, I turned to her and I said, there's three great names. And she went, no. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, I thought that was, what a, what a great um, I'll, I'll say the word practical example, right? It's not even theoretical like that. Not that we saw it in person, but you know, that, that was a real, um, uh, empirical example of, of the point that you were, mm -hmm. of you were making. So quick clarification you said except for jesus but even hebrews tells us that he learned obedience through what he suffered yeah so um so trials maybe i should clarify what i was saying i think i know what you're saying but i'm just making the point that even for jesus trials served as a kind of sanctifying aspect sin accepted they were necessary for the process of him becoming what's what Hebrews calls a fit and perfect savior. Mm. So he was not ready to be saved when he to be our savior when he was born, because he needed to go through, as the catechism says, all the miseries of this life, this life. right, and death itself. Yep. So without experiencing those things, he was not yet a prepared savior he had a goal to accomplish and he said his soul was restless until he had accomplished it so he knew he was a man on a mission and that mission was to be the savior and that entailed uh even the grief in the garden showed some of the anguish that he went through speaking of grief because mm -hmm. i highlighted that word in my message the the grief, the sorrow, the anguish, mental, spiritual, and emotional anguish were all combined uh, along with physical anguish with, um, with his prayer in the garden. That's yeah, good. Helpful clarification. I appreciate you uh, make, making it. I certainly wasn't making that point. I was speaking to the sin yeah, part, I, it, but, but it's still very helpful. Yeah. The, the Old Testament tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's true. That's right. a good reference. So, too. Um, it wasn't like even the, although I fully believe that you know that that was a decision that it wasn't like Jesus was programmed to only be that way. You know, he was fully man. He had a will, so he chose those decisions. But it was a, if we could say, God's providential plan for mm -hmm. that to be for the Savior to be whom Jesus was, right? So. I lost, I lost my train of thought. Well, we were talking about, um, um, 
Oh, help me out, Phil. Well, so I I referenced a tough text in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 7, Mm -hmm. about pastoral discipline. Mm -hmm. And this relates to the testing theme when we have to really examine ourselves. I think my, my desire in in saying that was to remind the church and here i want to remind our listeners whoever they may be that a big part of a pastor's role and an elder's role is to say and do hard things Mm. and i find that to be a difficult part of my calling and one that if i'm honest i'd I'd rather everything be great all the time (laughs) But that isn't, that isn't where, you know, if it's a theme throughout the Bible, then it's going to be a theme throughout the life of a congregation and throughout a pastor's ministry in a church. And so we, we need to continue to gird ourselves up for the, the work of, if necessary, for a little while, right. Right. introducing... With, with God's blessing, introducing grief in the lives of the people we, we serve as pastors, as shepherds, hmm. which Paul explicitly says that he did with his, with his so-called severe letter. Mm-hmm. Whether it's 3 Corinthians or the real 2 Corinthians, and our second is the 3 Corinthians, is a talk for another podcast. Right. Get into the manuscript evidence of the New Testament and so forth. It's a great conversation, but Paul... Scholars think that Paul is referring to a, a letter that may be lost because 1 Corinthians doesn't read like a severe letter. Right. And 2 Corinthians is severe, but he's referencing it in 2 Corinthians. That's why we think it's a third letter. Right. But in God's wisdom, we have two, and it's plenty. And, uh, but it would only make sense that Paul ministered and pastored and cared for people beyond the canon that we have in our hands. Sure. And that what we have is a selection of the available literature that, that the Holy Spirit has given ample and abundant testimony to the church as being our scriptures. And so we have this. And it's a severe letter. He says, I realize, and, and then he, speaking of self-referential, he opens up a window on his own heart and says, it grieved me to have grieved you. Right. I was deeply troubled when I realized that my severe letter caused you so much grief. Translation, as soon as I hit send, I questioned whether or not I should have sent that thing. <laughs> yep. And, but then he, he found out that the grief that he had caused them was from the Holy Spirit. And the way he knew that was is because he saw what a beautiful repentance that it produced in them. Mm-hmm. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Hmm. And so I challenged in the message the, the congregation to, to make sure that the grief that you feel because of your trials, you're at least, number one, open to the possibility that I might need to repent of something here in this situation. And two, that it not, you do not let it drive you to despair. Hmm. It's a tough challenge. Yeah. But good and very helpful. And you are actually kind of um, 
even issuing kind of a second challenge unspoken of um, loving your brothers and sisters, even in the hard things. Mm-hmm. You know, you're speaking of it from a pastor's perspective, but I'd say we're all called to that. Moms, dads, if you're a supervisor, you might have to break some bad news to one of your employees with you a layoff or a or a, a decrease in pay or a decrease in hours or a change in job description and you're trying to act on behalf of the good of the company and yeah maybe you not, might not even agree with it at some level a lot of times middle managers are stuck you know having to deliver bad news for the big boss yeah yeah and how to do that in a loving manner and not cause too much sorrow. Of course, you can't control the other person's reaction either. That's right. But you can control what you do mm-hmm. and um, how well you love someone and giving harsh news or mm-hmm. bringing about grief. It's not something I think anybody's really comfortable with. Um, yeah. I mentioned I'm watching New Amsterdam on Netflix and... I'm like on episode 14. We are not sponsored by New Amsterdam. No, we're just not. For the, for the record. <laughs> um, and in, in the show, one of the doctors is addicted, to, who runs the emergency department, is addicted to Adderall, which she's been taking since the age of 12. And one of her colleagues essentially struggles with, and people are noticing that she's starting to slip. And uh, she makes... She makes a fool of herself, this colleague does, in the process of more or less coming to the conclusion that she needs to report the emergency room doc for uh, being essentially impaired, an impaired mm-hmm. physician. That's quite a charge. Mm-hmm. And the relationship gets, blows up as a result of uh, her colleague trying to do the right thing. And the director of the hospital assures the colleague that she did the right thing in reporting uh, the impaired physician. And in the end, it, it ends well. And she, you know, everyone, tra- I just, it's a really a beautiful picture of how, if, if I could put it this way, how church discipline should work. Mm. Where and a very imperfect person in the congregation or an elder essentially calls out an, a fellow elder or fellow member of the church calls him to repentance. That person reacts extremely badly, always reacts badly, almost always. The friendship is ruined. The supervisor or the colleague, the fellow elder, assures the elder or the church member, no, you did the right thing. In trying to solve that crisis, the person that was originally called out comes to her senses or his senses and repents and the bond of fellowship is restored. That's the way it works. Every, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, we shouldn't expect anything else. Yeah. Unfortunately, it usually stops because once you call someone out in the church, that's the end of the relationship. Full stop, next book. Like you hit a point in the book, you close the book and you throw it away and you move on. We've talked to him about the revolving turnstile of South Jersey Christianity. And to me, it, it centers on our very low capacity to deal with trial and suffering. Mm. And 
our idolatry of a middle-class suburban lifestyle of comfort and ease that always gets slightly better, 2.5% cost of living increase in my well-being. Right. Where's my raise this year, God? <laughs> Be careful what you, uh, what you ask for. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's true. It's sad. It's a struggle in my own life, for sure, in my ministry. Um, but you're right, it's not without precedent, and it's not anything we should be surprised by. Um, see, see Paul rebuking Peter. True. See the letter of Philemon, to Philemon. You know, two examples that come to mind right away. Um, awkward, even as the reader, I think, to me, you know, to read those things and be like, ooh. But um, good, you know, to the point where God, in his divine wisdom, put them in our canon you know, for us to learn from. So Peter revisits this in chapter four. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. So spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. (laughs) But we're talking about the structure of first Peter. And and I explained that these first four sermons are the four sides of a square that sets the foundation of the whole book. So it is interesting that he uses the word fiery trial in chapter four. And in chapter one, he says, tried by fire. Mm. So Peter's quite, a, quite an intelligent writer. Uh, but the, the fact that we shouldn't be surprised, I think it, we're, we're going we're gonna to hear that again and again. Mm. We have a tendency to assume that things are going well. And I think churches, there are actually entire churches that are built around avoiding confronting its members and just giving them what they want to hear. And they've been called attractional churches. They've been called seeker-sensitive churches over the years. I don't know what they're called today. Maybe they're, I've heard happy clappy before. <laughs> Prosperity, you know, your best life now, these sorts of things. And um, it is a church growth strategy. Mm. Lying. <laughs> Never wanted to cut. Uh not cut to the chase. There so. you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll rely on God and the Holy Spirit and his work, I think, to grow, to grow our church mm-hmm. um, and the preaching of his word, which you've done so eloquently and faithfully, Phil. So um, we're, we're running short on time. I don't want to keep anyone longer than... Uh, then maybe they would be um, wanting to spend on listening to a podcast, although there's many, many, many more things that we could talk about. I, I find every single week, Phil, it's hard to figure out where to, where to draw the line in the sand and say, that's enough for this week, we'll mm-hmm. pick it up next week. But thinking that we might be coming to a natural stopping point. Any Anything else you wanted to share um, from your sermon yesterday or application for the listeners? Well, we began with my testimony. Maybe I can end with a coda on the testimony, which is this matter of blind faith. I think as a, as a former biology major and high school biology, physical science, environmental science teacher, I, that was my first career. And as someone who's a, a kind of a, a journeyman, maybe a hobbyist in 
science. I mentioned scientism as an error. Mm-hmm. I, I coined the phrase scientosis, mm-hmm. inflammation of the science. So uh, blind faith is not is often used as a criticism by the skeptic and the atheist because we can't see him, therefore we will not believe in him. But it's, it's not a fair crit- criticism, I don't think, Tim. What do you think? Is it, is it fair to, for a skeptic to accuse Christians of blind faith? Let, let me put it, the question another way. Is it good counsel for one Christian to tell another Christian just have blind faith? You can answer it either way, either from the adversary or as, as an ally. Advice from an ally, advice from the adversary. Oh, I would say, um, you know, the Bible tells us that faith is um, believing in things unseen. So all faith is blind faith in that regard. And I would say that a... Um, a non-believer um, of any type, uh, regardless of their worldview or philosophical bent, has blind faith. A priori. In, in whatever they're clinging to. Um, and so I'll put my faith in, uh, in, a, in a risen and ascended Savior over chance or, you know, picket, the flying spaghetti monster. So in apologetics, we like to encourage Christians to at least try to level the playing field, which is what you've done. So if there's a criticism coming from the adversary, whoever he may be, a skeptic or an atheist or an agnostic, it's helpful to show the skeptic how how he partakes or how his view, his worldview, is participating in the same weakness or error right. yeah what about from the ally you just got to have faith um i don't so what i would say is you're that's not wrong um you do you do just have to have faith but our faith is is um um it's not the you said this last week the, the, your faith is not how much faith you have. It's not mm. the strength of your faith that's important. Mm. It's the object of your faith that is important. So Jesus talks, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and I thought about that while you were preaching yesterday, because it's at the end of the day, what we're not talking about is you have to, you know, um, just persevere. You know, you just have to, you know, again, I'll use the, the term uh, grit your teeth and bear it kind of thing. Um, you have a, a Savior who can relate to you. He is a great high priest because he can relate um, to everything that you're struggling with. Um, you are part of the family of God whom God has given you um, for encouragement, for support, to rely on. Your, there's no Lone Ranger Chris, Christians. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So I'm now recapping your last three sermons in, in one, one response Good to you. Job. So, um, um, yeah, give me the A plus at the end of the day, Phil. Um, anyway, the, so my, I guess the, the, the answer I would give is, yeah, you do just have to have faith, but um, it is God who gives you that faith. He He's the author of your faith. He's the one who keeps your faith. 
Um, we talked about that last week as well. So it, at the end of the day, um, you're not perfect and you're going to struggle with that. And that's okay. God expects that. He's not surprised by it. It doesn't deter him. Um, it's not going to stop his process of salvation in your life in any way, shape, or form. And that should be an encouragement to us. I think that's why Peter can tell us that we can have joy inexpressible because it's not a, like this, this is out of our, this is kind of out of our hands here, you know? Um, and we, we get to be partakers of that. Um, you had said, I don't remember which week it was now, but you had said faith is an instrument. And yesterday you had said faith is the means by which we receive, I think it was the, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like the benefits of our salvation. That's right. Um, and so if you look at it that way, faith doesn't, um, it's not the source, it's the, the way we receive this. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we we can just you can just have faith, you know. Um, but what's key is what's on the other side of the faith is what you're saying. Right. That's right. Good. And that that faith is not um, merely a your, human and work. It's, right. It's and it's not your own in the sense of like I didn't just wake up one day. I'm going to have faith, you know. Right. And I'm not the one sustaining that faith in my life either. Not that I'm lazy or I have nothing to do with it, but so you know the what advice I mean. Advice is good, but it can be a little little. Uh, uh, it can, it misses some important truths, which you've, you've done a good job of uh, rounding it you out. You could certainly do much better than you just got to have faith. But I don't think, again, I don't think it's wrong right. in the sense of, well, that is true. You, you, you do just have faith, but there's a lot more to it than, than that. I wouldn't kick at it and go, well, that's ridiculous. You know, there's, I think there's it can be a there. little glib or trite also. Oh, sure. Kind of like... Uh, all things together for good, and then you move on. <laughs> a little bit like the the Pauline version of be warm and well-fed. Right. And you do nothing. You don't lift a finger. Jesus said, they don't lift a, they tie up heavy burdens, and they don't help you carry them. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of those. If you start taking Scripture out of context, meaning the context of what was written, what's around what was written, who was it written to, then you start running into... Um, hallmarky type things mm-hmm. that are, are not particularly helpful. Be still and know that I am God. We talked about that on this ha- podcast. Hallmarky. Hallmarky. That's a good word. I think you coined that word. Did I? <laughs> I think you did. Okay. Yeah, we were doing the Psalms and we talked about be still and know that I am God. I'm pretty uh, sure you, you coined hallmarky. Uh, I've forgotten more than I remember, Tim. <laughs> Maybe not. We can go back and check the tapes okay. on that one. Um, well, with that reference... Why don't you close us off with a final observation? Um, I would say, and um, mostly because I'm saying this to myself, not only in this moment, but just kind of constantly at this point in time, uh, the, the trials are, are there. I don't have to go looking for them. I'm not looking to make my life as a Christian harder than it needs to be. Um, I'm, be encouraged, as you shared yesterday, Phil, that um, only if it's necessary and for a little while do these trials exist in our life. And so let's rejoice in that. Um, let's not get hallmarky about it, you know. And I think the last thing I would say in terms of 
maybe not an observation, but just a challenge to our listeners is you are part of the family of God. So when the trials come, there are people in your life that God has providentially placed there to love you, to support you, to pray for you, to care for you, your elders, your pastor, the deacons, close friends um, in the body. Lean on these people, you know, seek help, seek wisdom, don't grit your teeth and bear it. Um, God loves you, and he does have a great plan for you, and that plan is within his, within his people, within the body of Christ. So, um, you know, uh, I think that's one way that we can acknowledge his goodness to us, is, is to not fail to acknowledge the people he's placed in our life to get us through these things. So, good word. Thanks. Thanks for giving me the last word today, too. You turned, you turned the tables. I'm normally the one doing that to you. So, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, Tim. <laughs> I didn't mean to cause you sorrow. Oh, I appreciate the time today, brother. It's always a wonderful conversation. Agreed. Um, we will endeavor to do it again and even better next week. Um, Actually, next week we have a guest preacher. Oh, that's right. Well, we'll figure out what that what that looks like maybe we can twist an arm and well i gave the um i I gave the low-hanging fruit to our brother in christ chris andino gets to preach on uh the redemptive historical biblical theological character of prophetic revelation (laughs) (laughs) good luck chris we'll be praying for you even now in advance of that but maybe we can talk about it next week until then Everyone have a have a great day, a great week and God bless.